What are you doing, you lazy whore? I work all day and come home and just want something to eat. Is that so much to ask that I just have a little bit to eat when I get home? Her provide you with a good house and everything you could want. All you got to do is make me a little something to eat. But no, you can't even have dinner ready when I get home. Instead, there you are, shoes off, feet up, like a woman of leisure. I shouldn't have known, just like the lazy whore you are. On some level, Anna still knew everything her husband had just said was wrong, but she knew a much more important truth as well. Never argue with him. Never, never talk back. She had just gotten the first new pair of shoes she had had in five years. Walking in them to the market, taking the children to and from school, to the landlord to pay rent, to the repair shop to pick up the chair that was in need of fixing, and to the druggist, had left her with a large blister. She had taken off one shoe to put a dressing over the blister. She had been beside herself with worry all day. Because she had so much to do that day, she knew she might not have her husband's dinner ready when he got home. Unfortunately, he was home a little early from his stop by the pub, where he went every night after work. These were the most dangerous nights, though every night was dangerous for her. Dinner not ready. One of the children a little too loud, or maybe one of them would drop something. Anything could set him off. When the verbal abuse first started, Anna thought it was more than she could endure. Little did she know how much worse things would get. It started with slapping, but soon got much worse. The first time he hit her, she had a huge bruise on her left eye that lasted for more than a week. Then he learned to hit her where the bruises wouldn't show. It was not unusual now for her to be beaten so bad that she couldn't get out of bed the next morning. Those were the only days she felt safe. When he beat her that badly, he would never beat her again the next day. Unfortunately, there was nowhere Anna could go. Her parents in West Virginia had passed. Coal mining families didn't typically live into old age, and her husband had forbidden her from corresponding with her brother and sister. She had now lost contact with them and didn't know where they were. For years she had wanted to leave the hell that she was in, but she didn't know what she could do. She was uneducated and knew she would never be able to get a job to support herself, let alone the boys. With no family to turn to, there was nothing she could do. Margaret down the street once had actually gone to the police, but nothing came of it, and nobody saw Margaret for six weeks after that. The rumor was that she had been given both a broken arm and a broken leg for her efforts. Nobody knew for sure. She didn't talk to anyone anymore. There was nothing Anna could do. She knew she was sentenced for life. There was no way out. Anna spent much of that evening trying to keep their two boys quiet. They were being particularly rambunctious. Anna knew how dangerous this was. Her husband was in the kitchen getting further and further into his whiskey bottle. Now was the worst time, when he was really drunk and would be the most violent. The boys came racing around the house, the oldest mad at his younger brother for something. You'd better shut those brats up, or you're going to be sorry, came the booming voice from the kitchen. Anna pleaded with her boys as they ran into the living room again. Her oldest simply called her a whore and kept chasing his younger brother. The elder finally caught the younger, and the two went flying against the mantle of the fireplace, where her husband kept his prized ship in a bottle he had painstakingly made over the period of a year. Anna watched with horror as the ship teetered, seeing it as if in slow motion, and then fell off its stand and shattered into pieces on the front hearth. For a moment, 
Anna's mind went blank. She couldn't think. Then her husband appeared in the hallway. He looked with shock at the one thing he treasured, shattered and broken on the floor. Then his visage slowly turned to rage. Anna had seen rage in his face many times before, but never quite like this. She wondered if she would ever see her boys again. Welcome to Nero's Fiddle, episode 16, Step by Step. This week, we're going to take a break from looking at specific historical periods. We've been reviewing our unbelievably slow but inexorable march from the first uncivilized Homo sapiens toward humanity. Today, we're going to look at a few unrelated cultural developments that we won't have a chance to look at in detail as we continue our journey to now but they'll have relevance to our analysis of why we've failed to respond appropriately to humanity's greatest challenge yet. So let's start with a letter from one brother to another in Shakespeare's England. September 29, 1599. Arthur Fletcher, Manchester, England. Dear brother, I had such a delightful time on my visit to London last Saturday. I wanted to apprise you of it in great detail. We went down to London's Bankside District. There's a new play about Julius Caesar by a popular playwright named Shakespeare at the Globe Theatre there. Like the majority of those seeking entertainment, we passed by and went to the Bear Garden, a delightful theatre surrounding a central fenced-in pit. We had a nice pint of ale, then watched the first entertainment of the day, the cockfights. The gamecocks were displayed for us to view. These were beautiful, colorful birds with razor spurs strapped onto their heels. We then placed our bets, and the cocks were released into the pit. It was delightful to see how they immediately began to circle and attack each other. They'd jump and fly into the air, flapping their wings and biting and kicking each other with their spurred feet. There was such a hubbub among the crowd as first one, then the other gamecocks seemed to get the upper hand. Everyone in the audience was yelling and cheering for the cock they'd put a few quid on. The fight went on until one of the cocks was lying bloody on the dirt floor, either dying or unable to get up. Then such a cheer went up from those who'd won their bet. We watched several cockfights and had such an enjoyable time. Then it was time for a break and some more ale. The second round of amusement was so amusing and delightful, I have a hard time describing it. A jackanape was brought out and introduced to us. I'd never seen one before. I was told he was imported from Naples, Italy, where they run wild. He was such a bright, intelligent little fellow. He looked a lot like a little man with fur all over him and a long tail. He was then put into the saddle of a pony, and a pack of bulldogs were released to go after the little guy. The crowd almost fell to pieces, laughing as the little jackanape held onto the saddle for dear life, and the bulldogs chased the horse all around the arena, snarling, jumping, and biting him. He would give such a yelp whenever he got bit. With the screaming of the ape, holding the curs hanging from the ears and neck of the pony, is very laughable. Then there was another break, more ale, and it was time for the main event. A bear was brought into the pit. His rear foot was chained to the post on one side of the ring. Then a pack of bulldogs were loosed into the arena. They surrounded the chain bear, snarling and barking, with the bear growling back at them. Then, as all at once, they attacked two at the throat on either side, two at his ribs, and one at his elbow. The bear brushed away the two at his neck with his paws, but they came right back for more. 
For more than an hour, the relentless bulldogs went at the bear. Three or four of them were killed by the bear in the melee, but were replaced every time one was mortally wounded. It was a very pleasant sport of these beasts to see the bear with his pink eyes luring after his enemy's approach, the nimbleness and weight of the dog to take advantage, and the force and experience of the bear again to avoid the assaults. If he were bitten in one place, how he would pinch in another to get free. That if he were taken at once, then what shift, with biting and clawing, with roaring, tossing and tumbling, he would work to free himself from them. And when he was loose, to shake his ears twice or thrice, with blood and the slather about his physiognomy, was a matter of goodly relief. Geoffrey Fletcher Yep, this was all great fun and entertainment in Elizabethan England. I think sometimes we like to think how cultured and sophisticated Renaissance-era English were, with William Shakespeare, Ben Jonson, and the King James Bible. But I don't think you can accurately understand them if you don't understand bear-baiting and the other blood sports that were popular at the time. Though I wrote the fictional letter above, it's not all of my authorship. The sentence about The screaming of the ape, beholding the curs hanging from his ears in the neck of the pony is very laughable is from an original source of someone who saw this. Also the paragraph beginning with, it was a very pleasant sport of these beasts to see the bear with his pink eyes leering after his enemy's approach, was penned by one of the audience members at an elaborate bear-baiting event put on by Robert Ludley, Earl of Leicester, for Queen Elizabeth I. Yes, Queen Elizabeth, the most enlightened monarch of the age, at least in my opinion, was a big fan of bear-baiting. It wasn't just bear-baiting and cock-fighting that entertained the English, though. They had a large variety of entertainments to choose from. The most popular seems to have been bull-baiting, or chaining a bull to a stake by one of his hind legs and setting a pack of dogs, usually bulldogs or mastiffs, on him. In fact, this is where bulldogs got their name. In this way, the audience enjoyed the treat of watching dogs being tossed in the air as the bull gored them. Other variations including whipping a blinded bear, dogfighting, badger baiting, and, of all things, rat baiting. I'm guessing that pretty much any event in which an animal is tormented, traumatized, tortured, or killed would have proved great entertainment for your average Elizabethan. As odd as it is to write a fictional letter about the joys of torturing animals, I couldn't write such a letter about a public hanging, another popular spectator event in medieval England to put myself in the head of someone who got great entertainment out of watching someone kick and writhe at the end of a rope as they slowly suffocate would be a little too surrealistic for me. Medieval executions were generally public. There was a strong belief on the part of kings and public officials in the Middle Ages that making executions public would serve to discourage others from committing such crime. And so, why would the authorities have any concerns about the condemned's dignity? After all, hadn't they been convicted of a capital offense such as stealing a rabbit, pickpocketing a shilling or more, or concealing a stillborn child as a single mother? The execution would start with a procession to the site of the execution in what was called the Theater of the Gallows. Though the execution ritual would often take all day, there would likely be a crowd already gathered at the doors of the dungeon when the condemned was brought out and put in a cart for the procession to the site of the execution. The cart would be followed by the local magistrate, sheriff, ministers to administer the last rites to the accused, 
and any other local dignitaries who decided to join the procession. There was also a security contingent drawn from the local military to handle the crowds. And crowds there were. Depending on who was being executed or the notoriety of the crime, people would sometimes walk for days in order to be able to watch an execution. Sometimes the crowds were so big, the shops in the area would be closed. Once the procession arrived at the gibbet, where the condemned would be executed, there might be speeches. Then there would be the reading of the death sentence. This was conducted under the supervision of the judge and carried out by a local official called the Dempster, who may or may not have served as the executioner, or by the sheriff. Then there was the admonition by the minister, as well as the last rites. Okay, all well and good enough, but it was the condemned that people came to see. Would they be brave and face their end with courage and dignity? Would they break down, as some did, when they saw the gallows or executioner with his axe? Then there were the last words of the condemned. They might give a speech. They might say nothing. They might warn the crowd against following in their wicked footsteps. They might deny their guilt, you never knew. But to the medieval audience in the theater of the gallows, it was all good spectacle. And then there was the execution itself. If it was a hanging, it's possible that the hangman had been slipped a few extra shillings by a family member to put the knot on the side of the prisoner's neck so that the fall would break his neck and make it a quick death. Perhaps the crowd would be more lucky and get to watch the condemned kick and writhe for a minute or two before dying. Sometimes they were treated to the sight of family or friends grabbing the feet of the struggling prisoner and pulling down on them to give their loved one a quicker death. But perhaps it was a beheading. With beheadings, he just never knew. Most executioners were pretty good, but everyone knew there would be a chance. The fact that everyone knew the first blow from the executioner's axe might not kill the condemned, and that it may take two, sometimes even three tries to complete the act, only added to the excitement and anticipation. The prospect of watching a manacled prisoner in excruciating pain, waiting for his or her end, seemed to be an additional draw for the medieval theater of the gallows audience. My point in all this is that the audiences seemed to love the spectacle of a good execution even more than the ever-popular blood sports. Finally, a few words about prohibition. In discussing the question of temperance, all lecturers from the beginning have made mention of the drunkards' wives and children, of widows' groans and orphans' tears. Shall these classes of sufferers be introduced but as themes for rhetorical flourish, as pathetic touches of the speaker's eloquence? Shall we passively shed tears over their condition, or by giving them their rights, bravely open to them the doors of escape from a wretched and degraded life? Is it not legitimate in this to discuss the social degradation, the legal disabilities of the drunkard's wife? If, in showing her wrongs, we prove the right of all womankind to the elective franchise, to a fair representation in the government, to the right in criminal cases to be tried by peers of her own choosing, shall it be said that we transcend the bounds of our subject? If in pointing out her social degradation we show how tile-present laws outrage the sacredness of the marriage institution, if in proving to you that justice and mercy demand a legal separation from drunkards, we grasp the higher idea that a unity of soul alone constitutes and sanctifies true marriage, and that any law or public sentiment that forces two immortal, high-born souls to live together as a husband and wife 
unless held there by love, is false to God and humanity. Who shall say that tile discussion of this question does not lead us legitimately into the consideration of tile important subject of divorce? Our God is a God of justice, mercy, and truth. Their God sanctions violence, oppression, and wine-bibbing, and winks at gross moral delinquencies. Our Bible commands us to love our enemies, to resist not evil, to break every yoke and let the oppressed go free, and makes a noble life of more importance than a stern faith. Their Bible permits war, slavery, capital punishment, and makes salvation depend on faith and ordinances. This is redacted from a speech given by Elizabeth Cady Stanton on June 1, 1853, in Rochester, New York. Yes, she was not only a great campaigner for women's suffrage, but a leader in the temperance movement in the mid to late 19th century as well. Why do I bring up the temperance movement and prohibition? Because I think almost everyone gets this one wrong. Everybody knows that prohibition was a resounding failure, caused organized crime to flourish, and ended in its repeal. Why then do I say it was a success? For the very reason Elizabeth Cady Stanton makes in her speech, 18th and early 19th century America had been a very tough place. Thousands and thousands of Americans had moved west, populating the entirety of what is now the continental United States. Think for a moment what this meant. Countless pioneers had to clear land in order to create their farms and plant their crops. This was no small feat, not by a long shot. If you've ever removed the stump of a large tree, you know it can be a full day of heavy work. Pioneers could have a hundred or more trees to clear from their land. And this was also before the time of mechanized farming. Farming could be back-breaking work with just a horse and a plow. Let's not forget the problems of pests before pesticides, droughts, and crop failures. Many men found the reality of farm life not what they had imagined. Cities and towns had to be cut out of the wilderness, roads constructed to bridge the vast distances, and so on. After about a century of dealing with all these elements, alcohol had become the primary means of escape from a life of drudgery for many American men. We've all heard of Johnny Appleseed, and those of my generation at least probably remember the legend of how he brought apples to the western wilderness. What most of us weren't told is that all of the apples that we eat come from grafted trees. When you grow trees from seeds, like Johnny Appleseeds, they're bitter and can't be eaten. So why did Westerners buy so many trees from Johnny Appleseed? To make hard cider, of course. The culture of hard drinking made its way into the cities that had grown up in the latter half of the 19th century. Stories from Chicago from that period talk about bars packed in the morning before the workday began, packed again at lunch, and packed once more after work. To my knowledge, no statistics exist to show how prevalent alcohol was during this period. But from contemporary accounts, it was a major problem. And what was at least one major consequence of this hard drinking on women of the age? You got it. They were the victims of domestic violence that rampant alcoholism commonly leads to. And the response by law enforcement in their communities? Right again. It's a family problem. No one wanted to get involved in domestic matters, so they were ignored. So what were the options for the thousands of victims of domestic violence? Divorce? This was before the era of no-fault divorce. Women had to have sufficient cause to secure a divorce. Extreme cruelty was a cause, but who would the judge listen to when the man said it never happened, especially if there were no doctor's records confirming the abuse, and neighbors wouldn't come forward to testify to the bruises? But let's say a woman did leave her husband. What were her options then? Educated women might be able to earn a living as a teacher or a nurse, especially on the frontier. 
Beyond these traditional roles, there were few options for a woman to earn a living by herself. We'll never know how many women of the period were like Anna, sentenced to life with their abusers because they had no other option. I've spoken of it before, but it bears repeating. Most of us don't know how precious hope is. It's like the air we breathe. It's just there. We hope we fall in love or get a better job. Or maybe we just hope we'll be able to go to the beach or the lake one of these weekends. It fills our world, but we take it for granted. If you ever meet someone who's lost all hope, you never forget it. Their eyes are empty. There's no emotion. It's like they've lost their soul. How many women were like on it in the late 19th century, sentenced to lives of abuse, with no hope of escaping their hell? About this time, there was a liberal class of more educated women of means who saw the problem and couldn't keep silent. What were their tools? There were no significant social services available to women at the time. There was no social safety net for women to fall back on. Women concerned about domestic violence looked at the problem and saw alcoholism. They couldn't vote. They weren't allowed into the halls of power. They had no legislative option. So what tools did they have? It seems that if someone in 1820, when the movement began, said, let's start a popular movement, get Congress to pass a constitutional amendment banning alcohol, and have three-quarters of the states ratify it, people would have thought they were crazy. Perhaps history is made by crazy people. It took them a hundred years, but they did it. Prohibition was ratified in 1919. And after that, it took only 13 years for all of the well-documented problems with Prohibition to convince Congress and the states to repeal it. During the 13 years of Prohibition, however, the amount of alcohol available for consumption in the U.S. was greatly reduced. As a result, the problem of alcoholism, and by extension the problem of domestic violence in the United States, was greatly reduced as well. I don't know that my thesis is true. Nobody was keeping statistics back then. And as far as I know, nobody has seriously studied this. I've just pieced this together from original sources and other histories I've read on this era. I wish someone would do a more serious historical study of this, but until then, we're left with the question. Was Prohibition successful? There were multiple reasons behind the temperance movement, and there was certainly a holier-than-thou anyone-who-drinks-is-a-sinner aspect to it. But to the extent that its purpose was to reduce the excessive levels of domestic violence in the country, I'm going with Prohibition was more likely than not a huge success. Today, we looked at three historical trends. Our first stop was a peak at blood sports in the Renaissance era. It was considered great fun and was the most popular form of entertainment in England at the time. Definitely more popular than Shakespeare. Slowly, however, voices began complaining that this was inhumane. As I never grow tired of saying, the wheel of human moral progress moves slowly but inexorably forward. It took from the 1500s to 1835 before Parliament would ban animal baiting. But the point is that it was banned because the English ultimately decided they didn't want to entertain themselves by torturing animals. Similarly, British public opinion eventually turned against public execution, which was our second stop today. The last public execution in Britain was 1867. The last public execution in the U.S., was in 1936. Our last stop was a look at Prohibition from a different perspective. We noted that America, before Prohibition, was a very hard-drinking society. 
with a proportionate increase in the rate of domestic violence. Although prohibition was repealed 13 years later, rates of alcoholism and domestic abuse seem to have reduced dramatically following its repeal. Why was watching the tribe shaman perform a human sacrifice fun and exciting in prehistoric times? Watching Christians be mauled by lions fun entertainment in Roman times? Watching animals attack and kill each other good entertainment to Enlightenment-era Britons? And why was watching people being executed such a popular attraction? And why did people ultimately decide that these forms of entertainment were inhumane? Similarly, why was getting drunk every night so desirable? And why did Americans decide to take such drastic steps to attack the problem of alcoholism? To answer these questions, let's delve into the biology of our brain just a bit. Imagine yourself on a roller coaster. Your car has crested the lift hill, the tall incline that took you to the top of the coaster. Click, click, click. And now you're speeding down the steep hill on the other side, accelerating faster and faster. What you feel is the thrill and excitement of being on the coaster. But what's happening in your brain is much more complex. Your visual cortex is processing the speed by which you're accelerating from the information that's being sent by the optic nerve. Your vestibular system is sending messages to your cerebellum and the vestibular nuclei in the brainstem, which are processing the change in acceleration as your body rushes faster and faster down the slope. The muscles in your stomach, chest, and shoulders tighten. The parietal cortex is processing these feelings as well as processing your acceleration. Your amygdala is sending you fear messages. Now that you're sailing down the 200-foot drop, your prefrontal cortex is processing all this information at once. Though your prefrontal cortex is receiving all these inputs from multiple sources of your brain, you just feel one single emotion, the thrill of being on a roller coaster. I'm sure there's a lot more going on in your brain that I'm not qualified to talk about, but my point is this. We experience our thoughts as simple, unified thoughts, but that's not how our brain comes up with them. There are many different components of our brain that operate separately. One area of the brain processes what I've been calling schadenfreude joy in this podcast. My own term to denote the enjoyment we get when we watch an animal or other human physically suffer. Another, separate area of the brain processes compassion. We get a stronger feeling of enjoyment from bullying someone in a weaker position or watching animals fight and injure each other. But this feeling is short-lived. Our pleasure at feeling compassion is less intense than the schadenfreude joy, but it's longer-lived. Game theorists have worked out that it's in people's best interest to accept a lower level of immediate payout in which everybody benefits than to accept a larger short-term payout in which you benefit but somebody else suffers. They've been able to describe this mathematically. In a sense, then, history can be seen as one long, slow unraveling of this math. Perhaps this unraveling can be captured by thoughts such as, I think it's a blast to watch our enemies get sacrificed, but though we're enemies, we're going to have to keep living next to each other, so it'll be better if we don't keep sacrificing each other. Sure, it makes my life easier when I have slaves, but society will be run better if we don't treat humans as property. I love watching people get executed, but maybe society will be better if we exercise the better angels of our nature, not the worst. Sure, I enjoy drinking a lot, but if too much alcohol is causing a substantial portion of our women to live trapped in domestic violence, perhaps it'll be best to stop drinking, at least for a while. This certainly does not summarize all of human history, 
but it's one driver. Let's call it the better angels driver. It's one of the weaker drivers of history, but look at it like evolution. Evolution works because animals that have a particular genetic mutation have an advantage over animals of the same species that don't have the mutation. Perhaps a bird with a thicker beak can crack thicker seeds, giving birds with thicker beaks an ever so slight advantage. These birds might survive and reproduce at very slightly higher rates than other birds of the same species with thinner beaks, leaving slightly more offspring. Over a few generations, the difference in numbers of thicker-beaked birds might be de minimis. Over a hundred years, there might be only a slight increase in birds with thick beaks. But over several thousand years, these thick-beaked birds might take over the population. So it is with the better angel's historical driver. We typically don't see a lot of change from generation to generation. And as it is with evolution, sometimes it goes backwards. Perhaps during a drought, the birds with thinner beaks could reach into crevices that birds with thicker beaks can't reach, thus are able to access food available to birds only with thin beaks. So evolution will favor the thin-beaked birds until the drought is over. So history disfavors the better angel drivers sometimes. And our historical progress toward an ever more compassionate society runs in reverse. Yet on a timescale of thousands of years, history runs in an ever more compassionate direction. Or, as Martin Luther King said, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. This week's read is Robert Axelrod's classic book, The Evolution of Cooperation. It's amazing. I highly recommend it. Enjoy. See you next week.